ومن يضلله فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اما بعد my dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته so now we're on hadith number 24 and this is perhaps the second longest hadith in the whole collection um, and the interesting thing about this hadith is that this is the first hadith inside the collection which is actually a hadith Qudsi. So in terms of things that we have to cover tonight, we actually have quite a bit of stuff to cover. So let us begin with the Ta'ala. An Abi Dharr al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu anil Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fima yarwihi an rabbihi azza wa jal annahu qala ya ibadi inni harramtu al-dhulma ala nafsi wa ja'altuhu baynakum muharrama fala tazalamu ya ibadi kullukum dhalun illa man hadaytuhu fastahduni ahdikum ya ibadi kullukum ja'i' illa man at'amtuhu fastat'imuni ut'imukum ya ibadi kullukum a'rin illa man kasawtuhu fastaksu سوني أكسكم يا عبادي إنكم تخطئون بالليل والنهار وأنا أغفر الذنوب جميعا فاستغفروني أغفر لكم يا عبادي إنكم لن تبلغوا ضري لن تبلغوا ضري فتضروني ولن تبلغوا نفعي فتنفعوني يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم كانوا على أتقى قلب رجل واحد منكم ما زاد ذلك من ملك شيئا يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم كانوا على أفجر قلب رجل واحد ما نقص ذلك من ملك شيئا يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم قاموا في صعيد واحد فسألوني فعطيت كل واحد مسألته ما نقص ذلك ما مما عندي إلا كما ينقص المخيط إذا أدخل البهر يا عبادي إنما هي أعمالكم أحصيها لكم ثم أوفيها إياه فمن وجد خيرا فليحمد الله وَمَنْ وَجَدَ غَيْرَ ذَلِكَ فَلَا يَلُومَنَّ إِلَّا نَفْسَهِ رَوَاهُ مُسْلِمٌ On the authority of Abu Dharr al-Ghifari, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him, from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from among the sayings he relates from his Lord, that he said, O my servants, I have forbidden wrongdoing for myself, and have made it forbidden for you. Therefore do not wrong one another. O my servants, all of you are lost, except for those whom I have guided. Therefore seek guidance from me, and I will guide you. O my servants, all of you are hungry except for those who I have fed. Therefore seek food from me, and I will feed you. O my servants, all of you are naked except for those whom I have clothed. Therefore seek clothing from me, and I will clothe you. O my servants, you sin by night and by day, and I forgive all sins. Therefore seek forgiveness from me, and I will forgive you. O my servants, you will not be able to harm me so as to bring any harm to me, and you will not be able to benefit me so as to bring any benefit to me. O my servants, if the first and last of you, and the human and jinn of you, were as pious as the most pious heart of anyone among you, it would not add anything to my dominion. O my servants, if the first of you, and last of you, and the human and jinn of you, were as wicked as the most wicked heart of anyone among you, it would not decrease anything from my dominion. O my servants, if the first and last of you and the human and jinn of you were to gather together on the same sector of land and all asked of me and I were to give every one of them what he asked, 
that would not decrease what I have any more than a needle decreases what is in the ocean when it is put into it. O my servants, it is but your deeds that I reckon for you, then I recompense you for them. The one who finds good is to give praises to Allah, and the one who finds other than this should not blame anyone but himself. This hadith is actually a very beautiful hadith. And this is uh, a conversation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is having with us. One of the commentators of uh, Sunan al-Tirmidhi, sorry, Sunan al-Nisai and Sunan ibn Majah, he's known by as Sindhi because he was originally from Sindh. He said if there was one hadith that it was compulsory for mankind to memorize, then this would be the one hadith that they would have to memorize. This would be the one hadith that they would have to memorize. There's another uh, commentator on Imam Nawawi's 40 hadith uh, by the name of uh, Nadham Sultan. And Nadham Sultan, when he commentated on this hadith, he was saying that this hadith indicates everything that the Sharia has prohibited. Everything that the Sharia has prohibited is in this hadith. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited oppression, this is everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited altogether. Everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited altogether and obviously is one of the main goals of the Sharia altogether. Now, there's quite a few things that need to be discussed. As for the, uh, you know, generally we have a tradition that we talk about the narrator at the beginning of every hadith. Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, when we talked about hadith number 18, we covered uh, that at that time. And then you notice that the way this hadith actually started off is that Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu, he starts off by saying, and this is what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam narrated from his Lord. This is what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam narrated from his Lord. And this shows us that this is not a hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, but this is a special type of hadith that is known as hadith Qudsi. This is known as a hadith Qudsi. That the origin point is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. The origin point is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. And hadith Qudsi, they came to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in two ways. Way number one is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself directly spoke to the Messenger of Allah so certain incidents that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, uh, speaks about from Al-Sirat wal Miraj, that the commandment of the Salah, right? This is something that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, uh, Allah's Messenger وسلم, he narrates directly from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So Jibril was not present in that. Then the second way that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, will narrate a Hadith Qudsi is that sometimes it will be through Jibril. It will be through Jibril. So Jibril will say that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said this. And then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, will narrate it. But it was made explicitly clear that this is not from the Quran. It was made explicitly clear that this is not from the Quran. The commentators added a third way that Allah that uh, Hadith Qudsi comes about. And that third way is that it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but not in the method that is direct. Not in the method that is direct. And that is that it is either through inspiration or through dreams or the Messenger of Allah وسلم, has a vision. So these are the three ways that they mention that are other than direct from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So either it is a dream, either it is a vision, or it is something that is inspired into the heart of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this is still directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but just not directly from the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, what are some of the differences between Hadith Qudsi and the Qur'an? Hadith Qudsi and the Qur'an. Who can give me some differences besides Sajjad? Go ahead. And wording. Fantastic. Fantastic. 
Fantastic. So the Quran, when it was revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is preserved in wording and in meaning. Whereas the hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, then those wordings are sometimes from the Messenger of Allah. In fact, most of the times they're from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and the meaning is inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And its preservation is done only in meaning and not always in wording. And not always in wording. What's the second difference between Quran and hadith? Fantastic. So the Quran is preserved in mutawatir form, whereas the Hadith Qudsi, not all of them are preserved in mutawatir form. What else? Can we recite Hadith Qudsi in Salah? So what do we extract from this? Besides Sajjad, I'm ignoring you today. <laughs> so what do we extract from this, Najib? What can we extract from this? Fantastic. We think a bit higher than that in terms of reward. Ajar? Yeah, things in terms of ajr. What's the difference between the two? For Quran, ahsan, and for hadith? No. Nothing. Fantastic. So that is the point we want to get at. That in terms of recitation of the Quran, we seek out its recitation by seeking reward for it. And it is what we recite in Salah as well. Whereas the Hadith Qudsi, it's not recited in Salah. And for reciting a Hadith in and of, of itself, there's no ajar uh, uh, or no reward necessitated from it. So let's just go through the list that is mentioned in the explanation. Number one, that the Quran was revealed in both meaning and wording, whereas the Hadith were only re uh, revealed in meaning. Number two, the Qur'an was established as a miracle and challenge till the Day of Judgment, whereas the Hadith Qudsi are not necessarily like that. Number three, is that the Qur'an is only stated or related with reference to Allah. One can only say, for example, Allah says in the Qur'an, but you will not say that Allah says in Hadith Qudsi, but rather you will say the Messenger of Allah narrated from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number four, all of the Qur'an is mutawatir, whereas the Hadith Qudsi is not. And number five, um, in terms of seeking reward, uh, one will seek reward from the recitation of the Qur'an, whereas one will not seek recitation from the uh, recitation of hadith. Tayyib. So that is the difference between hadith Qudsi and the Qur'an. Hadith Qudsi and the Qur'an. And there are some other differences which we've discussed in the past. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as reported by the Messenger of Allah He starts off by saying, O my servants. Now when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses, O my servants, firstly, who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala referring to? Is he referring to Muslims only, or is he referring to all of creation? And the general rule is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O my servants, he's actually referring to all of creation and not just the believers, and not just the believers. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives a commandment or a prohibition that is followed by, O my servants, it is a commandment or a prohibition that is applicable to all of mankind and not just the Muslims. So the most famous commandment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave when he uses Ya Ibadi is the verse in Surah Al-Zumar where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he says Ya Ibadi alladhina asrafu ala anfusihim la taqnatu min rahmatillah inna allaha yaghfiru dhunuba jami'ah That all my slaves who have transgressed against themselves do not despair of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives all sins. So the commandment to seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a commandment for the believers and for the disbelievers. So that is the first thing to understand. Number two is why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use the term Ya Ibadi, O my slaves? 
The first wisdom behind this is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing us the relationship that we have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is our master and we are those who submit to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and try to fulfill all of the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two is that it also shows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that is free from need and we are the one who are in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from need and we are the ones who are in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A third thing that we can derive from the term Ya Ibadi is a term of endearment. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala affiliates his slaves to himself, this is a term of endearment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses this term Ya Ibadi, then the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should pay very, very close attention to this because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to say something which is extremely beneficial. All of the kalam of Allah is beneficial, but when it is preceded by Ya Ibadi, then this is something that is extremely beneficial for mankind because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using a term of endearment, trying to soften our hearts to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. So now here, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he narrates from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I have forbidden dhulm upon myself. I have forbidden dhulm upon myself. How do we uh, define the term dhulm? How do we define the term dhulm? The term dhulm as Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah he mentions, it is to put something that has a defined place in its improper place. So it is to put something that has a defined place in its improper place. That is the definition of dhulm that we will be using for our discussion. That's something that has a defined place to put it in its improper place. And this leads us into our discussion. Can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually commit dhulm? Can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually commit dhulm? So the question here is not will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commit dhulm? The question is can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commit dhulm? Starting from over here. Can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commit dhulm? Do, what do you think? Very unlikely. Okay. Now you're answering the question, will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commit dhulm? And that's not what we want to get into because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never commit dhulm. That's mentioned in the Quran. The issue is, can he commit dhulm though? That is the question being asked. What do you think? He can? Go. Our brother over here? He can? Over here he can? He can? Ayman? You don't know? Silence. Good. Our brother? He can but wouldn't. Najib? He can. He can. Okay, understood. Ibrahim? He can because he can do anything. Rizwan? He can. Uncle? Somebody get something wrong then he can put him in So Allah can put dhulm on him. Okay, so he can. That's a summary. Go ahead. Our brother in the back. He can. Our brother in the back. He can but wouldn't. So no one believes that Allah can't commit dhulm. SubhanAllah, this is very strange. So anyways, there is a difference of opinion on this. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah and the early predecessors, they held this opinion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can commit dhulm, but what is befitting of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that he won't. And this is where the perfection or the kamal of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. Because this is what the scholars are trying to figure out. Is the perfection of Allah's attributes in the fact that he cannot commit dhulm to begin with? Or is the perfection in the, in the fact that Allah can commit dhulm but chooses not to commit dhulm? 
And Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he heavily argues the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can commit dhulm, but in reality will not commit dhulm. And this is where the perfection in this life. Then the third type of dhulm that is mentioned in this category, then that is the dhulm that we do towards other creation. So perhaps animals, the environment, you know, uh, things that are inanimate. So towards animals, you know, encaging animals that aren't meant to be encaged. Like the hadith of the woman that, you know, uh, encaged the cat and she didn't take care of the cat. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala compensated her with the hellfire for oppressing the cat, right? So that is one form of oppression. Number two is in terms of the environment. People think that, you know what, it's no big deal if I take my trash and I just throw it into the river or I just throw it out, you know, anywhere. From an Islamic perspective, this is considered a form of dhun. This is considered a form of oppression. Yes, it may not be a major sin, but to not take care of our own environments is a form of oppression that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold us accountable for. And we should be wary of this. So you know, it's very unfortunate that a lot of the times we'll see someone buy something from Tim Hortons, they're drinking it in the car, they get to a red light, and then you see them throw it out of their car. Right? At that time, a person thinks, you know what, it's not a big deal. And we agree, it's not from the kabair or the noob, it's not from the major sins. But at the end of the day, Allah has given us a responsibility to take care of our planet, right? And this could be considered from the minor form of oppression. Another example I'll give of this is hunting for the sake of sport. So I know living in Alberta, this is like a huge thing. Hunting is a huge culture over here. But as Muslims, when we hunt, we hunt for food. We don't hunt for sport and we don't hunt for trophies. You know, hunting just for the sake of hanging, you know, massive deer head inside of our house, Islamically is not permissible. Islamically is not permissible. You have a question? Is Go ahead. So the general, no, the general rule is that the Islamic State would take care of the garbage. So there was two types of, uh, of waste. One was the human waste, and that by definition no one would do in, 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 in the city. You would go outside of the city to, to uh, take care of your human waste. Then the other waste is that the Islamic State would allot spaces where that, that trash would be thrown, where that trash would be thrown. And that is why it's beautiful that even a part of our deen is that the Messenger of Allah he tells us, and the lowest form of Iman is that if you see something on the ground that doesn't belong there, you pick it up and put it in its proper place. This is a part of our faith, right? To take care of uh, our environment. Um, now the second categorization of dhulm. The second categorization of dhulm. This is in relation to Will it be forgiven and what you need to do in order to forget it, uh, to have it forgiven? So the first form of dhulm that is not forgiven is shirk. So that is the dhulm that is not forgiven. And this is the only dhulm that will not be forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is to die in the state of shirk. So if a person committed shirk with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he dies in that state, then there's nothing that can be done to salvage this person's fate. However, if a person is still alive, and this person wants to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if he worshipped Iblis himself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be willing to forgive this individual. So as long as they're alive, then there is hope for them. But after they're dead, then they cannot be forgiven after that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not forgive them. Number two, is the dhulm that will not be overlooked until it is reconciled in this life or the next. Dhulm that is not going to be overlooked until it is reconciled in this life or the next. Now, the dhulm that is being referred to over here, this is the dhulm that takes place against other human beings, until other human beings. In fact, in the narration of Imam Muslim, 
And this is one of the hadith that Imam Muslim rahimahullah was criticized for as we discussed last week as well, was the hadith that on the day of judgment, if two rams butted heads and one ram rocked off, knocked off the horn of the other uh, on the day of judgment, that ram will be held accountable. That ram will be held accountable. Now it's a very minority opinion amongst the scholars that even the animals have judgment between them. But here, those scholars that said that even if animals don't have judgment between them, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is showing us that everything needs to be reconciled in this life or the next. That before you go to Jannah or Jahannam, those things need to be reconciled. So you take someone's money, you, you know, harm them in any way, then all that needs to be reconciled in this world. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He places so much uh, emphasis on forgiveness. You know, so many verses in the Qur'an that talk about forgiveness. The most beautiful of them, in my humble opinion, the one in Surah An-Nur, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلْيَعْفُوا وَلْيَسْفَحُوا أَلَا تُحِبُّونَ أَنْ يَغْفِرَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ That pardon and forgive, do you not love that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should pardon and forgive you as well? So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that, look, adopt pardon, adopt forgiveness, and in the hopes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will pardon and forgive you as well. And just, you know, from a human perspective, that as long as you're holding on to that grudge, it's painful. You, we harm ourselves for no reason as long as we're holding on to grudges. But when you pardon and forgive for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then not only does that pain go away, Allah replaces it with comfort, and then at the same time, you realize that Allah has promised you forgiveness in return. So this forgiveness, and this is very important to understand, will take place in one of two ways. Either it is a transgression that you committed against Allah, that Allah will no longer hold you accountable for. And a more beautiful meaning that is attributed to Abdullah ibn Abbas, and I pray that, you know, inshallah, this is from the truer meanings as well, is that perhaps you transgressed against someone else, and you did not seek forgiveness for them, yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides them to forgive you, so you're not held accountable for it. And this is the more beautiful meaning, and inshallah, is from the more truer meanings, that is attributed to Abdullah ibn Abbas. So that you committed, a, that when you forgive someone for the sake of Allah, perhaps you committed a transgression against someone else, that Allah guides them to forgiving you, even though you may have not sought their forgiveness. Even though you may have not sought their forgiveness. And this shows us, you know, subhanAllah, the, the importance of apologizing and seeking people's forgiveness when we do make a mistake. And then this also shows us that if someone does have the courage to apologize to you, then the Islamic thing to do is to forgive them. The Islamic thing to do is to forgive them and not hold a grudge against them. Go ahead. So you know for the Muslims, right? If we oppress one another, yeah. we What about the non-Muslims? Same thing. Say. They go to Jahannam, right? Right. So what happens in their situation? It's fantastic. So once uh, you understand the rule of good and bad deeds, good and bad deeds, they don't enter us into paradise, but they increase our rank. So when someone takes your good deeds away, they're decreasing your rank in paradise. Likewise, when someone gives you their bad deeds, then it decreases, I mean, whichever way you look at it, it makes your punishment in the hellfire more severe. So that even happens with the disbelievers. That if they were to take our, dis our good deeds away, yes, it may not benefit them per se, because they can't enter paradise or have their rank increased, but perhaps it could decrease some of their punishment in the hellfire. And likewise, it will decrease our rank in Jannah as well. That's the way it would take place. Wallahu ta'ala alam. So that is the second type of oppression, that it needs to be reconciled in this life uh, uh, before the next. Before the next. And the third type of dhulm is the dhulm which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will either overlook or punish for. 
is the dhulm that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will either overlook or punish for. And these are the small sins that we transgress against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the small sins that we do that we transgress against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, what is the significance of staying away from dhulm? Why would we want to stay away from dhulm? If you look and analyze some of the verses in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses this, you'll see that there's actually many incentives in, in order to stay away from dhulm. Number one is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never make oppressive people successful. People will never be successful if they are oppressors. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guarantee them failure. You cannot step upon the rights of other individuals and become successful in this life or the next. But the end result will always be fa failure. Uh, then number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wallahu la zalimin. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not love the transgressors or the oppressors. And this shows us that one of the ways that we lose the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is when we transgress against the boundaries of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when one starts to feel, hey, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not love me? Why is Allah not answering my du'as? Why is Allah not protecting me? Why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not granting me favors? Then this shows us that a person perhaps is transgressing against themselves. Perhaps a person is transgressing against themselves. And that is when they need to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is it related to what I'm talking about? Yes. Sure. They're so happy? That is never the case. There's no dictator that will be happy. Except that they will be miserable in this life while they're alive. Find a single dictator, except that he, when he walks on the street, he needs to walk with security guards because he knows that something bad is going to happen to him. So that sense of security is taken away from him in this life. <coughs> and at night, they know of the wrong things that they've done and they, you know, they have this sense that you know, a day will come where I will be destroyed and humiliated. So yes, they may put on a persona, they put, may put on a face. I know, inshallah. I, I'm answering his question. Hopefully, we'll get battery. So, so going back. So then, uh, if a person ever feels that he doesn't feel the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then at that time, he needs to reevaluate and reassess his own situation. He needs to reevaluate and reassess his own situation. Number three, that a cause of societies being destroyed is oppression. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he mentions in Surah Al-Kahf, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed certain nations once they became oppressive. Once they became oppressive. Now the destruction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it comes to destroying nations does not necessarily mean that everyone will die, but rather it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala perhaps will just continue them in their own disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in the hereafter, that is when the ultimate destruction will take place. That is when the ultimate destruction will take place. Now how does one keep oneself from committing dhulm? How does one keep oneself from committing dhulm? And as we referred to, there was a, a commentator on Imam al-Nawis for the hadith by the name of Nadhim Sultan. He mentions four ways uh, that a person can prevent himself from committing dhulm. Number one is having taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he constantly reminds himself to be cognitive of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the more you remind yourself of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the less likely you are to oppress. The less likely you are to oppress. Number two is that the person should try to develop humility to the best of his ability. The reason why he emphasizes humility over here is that people become oppressive not when they're in the state of humility, but rather when they're in the state of arrogance. And when you're in the state of arrogance, that is when people start to oppress. 
So if you eliminate that arrogance and that pride from your heart, then it leads to humility, which actually prevents a person from becoming oppressive. Number three, is that preventing oneself from envy. Preventing oneself from envy. Because it is envy is a major cause in people becoming oppressive towards one another. People becoming oppressive towards one another. And then the fourth and last thing that he mentions, the fourth and last thing that he mentions is look at the evil consequences and remind yourself of the evil consequences of committing dhulm. Remind yourself and look at the evil consequences of committing dhulm. That who wants to be of those individuals that will not be successful? Who wants to be of those individuals that will not attain the love of Allah? Who wants to be of those individuals that will be destroyed? And in fact, in some of the verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even equates dhulm with leading to disbelief. With leading to, dis uh, leading to disbelief. So if you look in Surah Al-Ma'idah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about ruling by other than the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He describes them as three people. He describes them as the kafirun, the zalimun, and the fasiqun, right? Some of the commentators on these three verses, they said that they're all um, disbelievers, but they will vary in their level of oppression and transgression against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he actually tells us that one zulm, it becomes darkness on the day of judgment. It becomes darkness on the day of judgment. It becomes darkness on the day of judgment. Now the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he narrates from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he goes on to say, therefore do not wrong one another. Therefore do not wrong one another. And this shows us that the attitude of the believer towards the dhulm is that he should consider it prohibited at all times. That there should not be a single time where anyone at any time should consider oppression permissible. If Allah has given you authority and He's given the ability for you to do something, then you should do it. Then you should do it. So for example, we see in oppression, it is not permissible that a person becomes apathetic towards that dhulm, right? As the Messenger of Allah he tells us that whoever amongst you sees an evil oppression, let him change it with his hand. If he's unable to change it with his hand, then let him speak out against it. And if he can't speak out against it, then let him hate it in his heart. And that is the weakest of faith. So this shows us that the, the relationship that we have with oppression is that when we are physically capable to change that oppression, we should change that oppression. And if you're not capable of changing it physically, and generally speaking, this is only for the people of authority. The changing you know, oppression with one's hand is for the people of authority. That is the general rule. There are exceptions, but that is the general rule. So the very least that all of us can be doing is speaking out against it and making sure we're hating it in our hearts. And this is why it's very important not to become desensitized to oppression. So you'll see pictures of like kids dying in Syria on Facebook and in Twitter. And then the natural reaction is, you know what, let me just scroll past it. Because I don't want to, you know, have to deal with it. But part of Iman is feeling that pain so that you can speak out against it, make dua against the oppression. At that fourth level, when they know that this is what the Quran and Sunnah actually tell us, but they choose not to follow it. But they choose not to follow it. So guidance, it is initiated with the intention to be guided. And that is where it should actually take place. That is where it should actually take place. We have one more minute, inshallah. We have one minute? Inshallah. I have no choice. Uh, you, sorry, you have no choice. Jazakallah <laughs> khair. Then the last point 
Then the Messenger of Allah he goes on to narrate from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, therefore seek guidance from me and I will guide you. Therefore seek guidance from me and I will guide you. So this is a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that any individual that seeks guidance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide them. There's two points I want to mention over here. Point number one, how about those people that say, I sought guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't guide me. What is happening over there? Here the Messenger of Allah is saying that if you ask guidance from Allah, Allah will guide you. But this individual, they asked for guidance, but they didn't find guidance. You want to answer? They weren't sincere in asking about it. That's usually the predominant thing. They don't take the actions to seek that guidance. Fantastic. So number one, a person wasn't sincere. And this is what Shaykh Abdul Thaymin rahimahullah mentions, is that the, a lot of people, they do pray. A lot of people do pray. They say, mustaqim. Oh Allah, guide us to the straight path. Yet you will find them doing so many other haram things. Shaykh Ibn Thaymin rahimahullah, he comments on this by saying that these people, when they say, mustaqim, they're just doing lip service. Their hearts aren't attentive. They aren't paying attention to what they're saying. So that sincerity is lacking. And that is why they're not being guided. Number two, is that people have defined guidance for themselves. People have defined guidance for themselves. So they're making dua, oh, they're supplicating, oh Allah guide me, oh Allah guide me. Yet when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows them what is halal and haram, they don't want to implement it. If you don't want to implement it, where is the guidance going to come from? Because the guidance is in the implementation, right? That is what our responsibility towards guidance is. That is what our responsibility towards guidance is. The last thing I'll mention about guidance, is that guidance is a favor and a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Guidance is a favor and a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You look inside Suratul Hujarat, and inside Suratul Hujarat, there are some beautiful discussions about guidance. When we accept guidance, we're not doing a favor to Allah, but rather Allah did a favor to us, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He decides out of His infinite knowledge and His infinite wisdom, who will receive guidance and who will not receive guidance, right? So when Allah gives us guidance, it is a favor upon us and we don't do any favors to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then this important point over here is actually a refutation of two heretical groups. One group of the Qadariyah, where they said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has no role in guidance whatsoever. That we are responsible for our own guidance. And then the Mu'tazila, they went to the exact opposite extreme. They said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted guidance for everyone, but mankind had a way out of this to choose not to be guided. And inshallah we'll discuss this at a later time. I just want you guys to understand the general principle that guidance is a favor and blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He places with people based upon His infinite knowledge and wisdom. We'll conclude with that. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma bihamnika shadu la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa tubi